Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. It's a delight to be here with you. I want to reaffirm what Rich said, asking you to, to pray for the retreat. This is big. This feels big. Um, you know, we want to think through strategically how this church can be a healthy church that changes the world. I say that a lot, and I say that deliberately, not because I can't think of anything else to say, but because I want us to be thinking that way about being a healthy church. It makes an impact, so pray for us. and. Uh, expect that we will solicit your wisdom and input. Uh, elders don't just, uh, we don't have all the components within ourselves to lead. We, we need your help, and so uh, we will definitely be calling upon you for wisdom and, and help uh, making this church all that it could and should be to make an impact for the Great Commission. But I want to begin by saying that doctrine or theology, despite its sullied reputation as being irrelevant or impractical is actually the nuclear core reactor of the church. Doctrine is the nuclear reactor of the church. And you know what I mean by that, right? The, the heart of a power plant is the nuclear reactor. And nuclear reactors produce chain reactions and generate heat and electricity and give light to the world. The church is a power plant. And the nuclear core reactor deep inside the power plant that empowers the church to infiltrate the darkness and to reach the nations and give light to the world is nothing less than the doctrines found in the pages of Holy Scripture. And you see, all all the time, uh, churches are trying to boost their numbers and grow their churches with gimmicks and fads and flash-in-the-pan pizzazz that, to be sure, generates lots of activity and gives the appearance of life and momentum. But mark my words, there is no substitute for sound doctrine. Why? Because it is the nuclear core reactor of the Christian life. And I know that people all the time talk about doctrine like it's a liability. I mean, it's just so risky. I mean, people complain all the time that, well, doctrine divides. Well, that's true. It does that sometimes. But you see, doctrine clearly taught and humbly received also unites. It consumes and inflames and transforms and lifts people out of their lukewarm mediocrity and apathy. Why? Because when you give people a stunning vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe, when you show people the great doctrines of the Bible and why they mean everything, it's like taking the jumper cables of their hearts and connecting them to a nuclear core reactor. And what that does is make a church, a healthy church that changes the world. And do you know how I know I'm not making this up? How I didn't just come up with this on my own? It's because that's precisely what Paul gives us in Titus chapter 2. 
that doctrine is just so much more than a piece of paper or something that merely defines our denomination. No, doctrine, biblical doctrine, clearly taught and humbly received is causes chain reactions in the church that causes that church to be a healthy church that changes the world. And that is exactly what this church is going to be. I mean, everything is riding on this. I hope you know that. Because if a church is, does not preach and love sound doctrine, if doctrine is not the nuclear core reactor of that church, is it even a church? And you see, you remember, you remember in, in Titus what Paul's been up to in chapter 2, right? You remember what he's been doing. He spends 10 verses describing the particular ways each of your lives is to change. He's talking about authentic life change and transformation. Your lives need to be different. Your lives need to be godly. Your, your lives need to put Jesus Christ on display. But you see, the catch is you don't have any of the components within yourselves to actually do that. Why? Because the Christian life is not merely difficult. It is impossible. And so get this. In verses 11 through 15, Paul opens the power plant and takes us to the nuclear reactor of truth and gives us all of the theological firepower we need to make authentic life change and transformation possible. In other words, Paul doesn't just tell you that you should be godly. He gives you all the theological firepower that you need so that you can be godly. Do you hear the difference? I mean, this, this is insanely hope-giving. And you might be thinking, okay, wise guy, if that's true, if that's true, that, that doctrine is the nuclear reactor of the Christian church, okay. You know, if that's true, that what we believe determines how we live, and it is, well then, Jared, what are the doctrines that we're supposed to believe? What are the doctrines that produce authentic life change and transformation? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked because that is exactly what Paul gives us in Titus 2. He gives three, three doctrines that produce authentic life change and transformation. And I'm just telling you right now, hear me now, if you believe them and love them and submit to them, your lives will change. Do you want your life to change? Amen. That took away my next line. Now, because my next line was going to be, my next line was going to be, uh, uh, or are you pretty content with where you're at? Okay, so you all want to change. I know you do. Amen to that. But what I want you to know is that that kind of life is not merely a possibility, but a profound and inevitable reality. So where that's found us, Titus 2, here's where we're going. This morning and next week, I want you to see from this text three doctrines. Three doctrinal realities that could transform your lives if you would only embrace them with faith and zeal. Three doctrinal realities that could transform your lives if you would only embrace them with faith and zeal. And so here we go. Doctrinal reality number one. You must be renovated by God's grace. You must be renovated by the power of God's grace because here's the thing about God's grace. It has more meaning and more substance and more power than most people have ever even dreamed. 
You see, what you have to get about grace is that it's not God's mere tolerance. It's not merely God's leniency. No, get this now. Grace is the all-transforming power of God to do what God commands. Now, it's true, it's true that an aspect of God's grace is his free and undeserved pardon of all of our guilt and sin. We are sinners saved by grace through faith. That's still true, that's still true, but you have to understand that's not all the Bible has to say about grace. You see, grace is also his gracious, effectual power to do what he commands. In fact, let's put it this way. The same grace that saves is the same grace that sanctifies. The same grace that rescued us is the very same grace that renovates our lives. You don't believe me? Don't believe me? Well, why then did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I labored more than all the other apostles, and yet not I, the grace of God within me. If grace isn't God's power to transform the soul, then why does Hebrews 13, 9 say that it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace? If grace is not God's power to transform the soul, then why did Paul virtually equate his grace with his power when he said, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is perfected in weakness? Do you see? Grace isn't just passive leniency. It is his power to produce in us all that he demands of us. And my point is that is exactly what Paul is saying in Titus chapter 2. Look at verses 11 and 12. And we're going to look at this text every single word. We're going to diagnose and dissect this text at the granular level. Verses 11 and 12. He says, for the grace of God appeared to all men. I'm skipping some stuff. And notice, notice what grace does. Verse 12, grace instructs us. It trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly now in the age. Do you see? I'm not making this up. Grace does stuff. Grace is power. Grace transforms because notice very carefully the details in the text. You see that tiny little word for in the text? For the grace of God appeared. Do do you know what the word for means? This is a really big deal. The word for means because. It explains something. It gives a reason for something. It explains how something is even possible. You see, for example, I can fly, stop bullets, and shoot laser beams out of my eyeballs. Why? For I am Superman. Do you see? That's what Paul's doing here. Because you remember, you remember what Paul's doing. In verses 1 through 10, he just described the particular ways each of your lives should change. Right? Do you remember? Older men... Be this, live this way. Older women, be this, live this way. Young women, be this, live this way. Young men, be this and live this way. How? 
How am I supposed to be and do all that God commands me to be and do? Answer, verse 12, verse 11, for the grace of God appeared. Do you see? Grace is the secret. This is literally the answer to every struggle that you could possibly face in the Christian life, namely the radical power of transforming grace. Because to be sure, sin is strong, but it's not nearly as strong as the liberating power of sovereign grace. Because what did Paul say in Romans 6.14? Sin shall not be master over you. Why? For you are not under law, but you are under what? Grace. Grace is the essence of what we need as weak, fragile, fallen, fallible people. You see, the answer to your current sin struggles is not merely that you try harder not to sin, although that's probably true too. No, the deepest answer to your sin struggles is to plead for grace to do what God commands. And here's the thing that Paul, about grace that Paul reveals in the text. And, it, and I want you to see this. You've you got to get this. In verses 11 and 12, Paul gives two transforming activities of grace that renovate our lives. Two transforming activities of grace. Number one, grace appeared. Number two, grace instructs. Look at the first transforming activity of grace. Grace appeared, verse 11. Paul says that you can be holy, you can be godly, you can be transformed, verse 11, because the grace of God, the Savior, appeared to all men. Now, I know that your version says the grace of God appeared bringing salvation to all men, but unfortunately, that's not what the Greek text actually says. The Greek actually says, save your not salvation. Our English Bibles, unfortunately, have done us a disfavor at this text and have obscured Paul's point. Paul is not saying that salvation has come to all men, but that grace has appeared to all people. God is a Savior, and His grace appeared to all people. Meaning what? Meaning, not that all people are saved, not that all people will be saved, but that grace is the only way that people can be saved. The only option on the table for people to get saved is the grace of God alone. But this raises the question, doesn't it? What does it mean that the grace of God appeared? I mean, do you you see how clever Paul is here? Grace appeared. Okay, in what way? How did it appear? When did it appear? Did it appear? In what form did it appear? And then all of a sudden, it dawns on us with stunning force that God's grace appeared in literal history in the form of and with the arrival of Jesus Christ. Do you see? Do you see what Paul's doing? The grace of God that appeared, in a sense, is Christ himself. In other words, the greatest fullest, clearest manifestation of God's grace is found and located in Jesus Christ himself. Put it this way, 
every gracious thing that God ever did in history was a faint whisper compared to the shout of when he sent Christ. The grace of God appeared. So do you see, do you see what this says about who God is? You see, to prove that he's gracious, he did the most gracious thing possible, namely sending his own son who is grace himself. I mean, why do you think Paul calls God a savior here? Why does he do that? He could have called him any number of things, any number of things, but he calls him a savior. Do you know why? It's because if you could pick only one word that would describe God and everything he has done throughout human history, the best word you could pick would be Savior. Meaning what? He loves to save sinners. He loves to save them and give them what is best, namely himself to be enjoyed as their treasure forever. And so my question is, what are your perceptions of who God is? Maybe the better question is, what are your misconceptions about God that need to be deconstructed and then rebuilt by the word of God? Because in my experience, most people's perception of God is as the grouchy janitor in the sky who always kind of looks upon you with mild disgust and disappointment. As a God who has buyer's regret now that he knows who you really are. Is that how you feel about God? A God that you have to appease with good works after you sin so that you win back his affection? Guess what? The best news in the world is none of that is true. That is not who God is. He is a savior. He loves to save sinners. He he loves sinners before he saves them. He loves sinners after he saves them. He is literally overflowing with sovereign grace. I mean, hasn't he already proven his love to you in sending Christ? Hasn't he already proven his grace to you in the great lengths to which he has gone to save you from eternal woe and despair? You see, that is who God is, a God whose grace appeared. And the funny thing about that word appeared is that the Greek term, the literal Greek word as it appears in the text is, listen, epiphane. Epiphane. Epiphany. Epiphany. That's, that's the word that Paul uses. Do you know what an epiphany is? It's when everything comes together. It's when the light bulb goes on, when the problem finally gets resolved, like when Einstein discovered E equals MC squared, epiphany. When Edison finally figured out how to generate electricity, epiphany. Paul's point is, the arrival of Christ to the planet is the greatest epiphany in history. Why? Because his arrival to the planet solves the deepest dilemma in the universe, which is... How do hell-deserving sinners get reconciled to God as their treasure? And he solved it when he showed up to the planet as a man. Do do you see Paul's implication here? Do you see what he's saying? 
If the final manifestation of grace that solves the deepest dilemmas of life is Christ, and he is, the point is, everything you could possibly need or want in this life is ultimately found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every temptation, every bout of depression, Every disappointment, every doubt, every fear, every anxiety, every battle with loneliness, every time you are hurt or violated or do something stupid, the grace of God has come and it is enough for you. The grace of God appeared. And that's the first transforming activity of grace, which brings us naturally to the second transforming activity of grace. Grace instructs. Look at verse 12. Look at the text. Paul tells us that the grace of God has not only appeared to all men, it does something else also. Verse 12, the very grace of God by which we are saved, here it is, instructs us to deny ungodliness and to live soberly, righteously, and godly now in the age. Do you see it? Instructs is a verb. And the subject of that verb is grace, meaning grace is the thing that does the instruction. You see, again, grace is not some sort of passive benevolence where God just kind of lets us off the hook. No, grace is power. Grace is God's active, effectual power that empowers us to do what he commands. It, it, It is his effectual power that changes and transforms our very lives. Put it this way, again, the very same grace by which we are saved is the very same grace by which we are sanctified. And here's the thing about the word instructs. That's the very same word. That's the very word used in the ancient Greek world to describe the instruction of children to make them responsible adults that make wise decisions. That's the word they'd use, this. Which means grace is God's internal educational system and program that instructs us to have life change and transformation. Grace does stuff. It is power. Let's put it this way. You are called to do in the Christian life, are you not? But if you're doing it right, it's not just you doing the doing, is it? You see, everything you do in dependence upon and in obedience to Jesus Christ, he is the one doing the doing through you. I mean, would you think that God was like Pharaoh? That he would demand that you make bricks without straw? No, hear me loud and clear. Everything that God demands that you obey, he supplies the grace through Christ so that you can obey. That's who God is. But now there's two questions that rise up to be demanded, that that demand to be answered. Number one, what exactly does grace instruct us to do? And number two, how actually do you get access to that grace? What does grace instruct us to do? How do you get access to that grace? Number one, what does grace instruct us to do? Paul tells us exactly what it instructs us to do. Verse 12, look at the text. Notice the two things that grace instructs us to do. Grace instructs us, here it is, to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts on the one hand, 
and also to live soberly and righteously and godly now in the age on the other. Do do you see the two things that grace empowers us to do? A negative and a positive. Grace instructs us to deny ungodliness on the one hand and to live a certain way on the other. To not do this, but to do this. And so what we have here is the two-edged sword of the power of grace. Notice the first edge of the sword. Grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. You see, negatively, defensively, if you will, grace supplies the power to deny certain things. You know the things that you should never, ever do? Grace is the power of God to never, ever do those things. That's what Paul's saying. And the question is, he talks about ungodliness. Do you know what ungodliness is? Do do you know what it means to be ungodly? Because contrary to our instinct, to be ungodly is not only the, you know, really disgusting acts of rebellion like murder and and rape and, and worshiping golden calves. No, to be ungodly at its root is this. It is to try to find ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction in something other than God. That is ungodliness. And you see, the funny thing about ungodliness is that it can actually be really moral. You you can be a moral, ungodly person, all because of the essence of ungodliness is, is all about what you love and treasure more than anything else in the world. Think about it. There are over two billion moral, ungodly people in the world, and their names are Mormons, Muslims, and Jehovah's Witnesses. Why? I mean, I know that sounds harsh and and we're not better than them, but the point is, despite their morality, they are actually ungodly because they don't have the true God as the treasure of their souls. You see, the terrifying thing, hear me now, about ungodliness is that you can be a lifelong church attender and have a cultural form of Christianity and be as ungodly as a pagan, all because of the root of what ungodliness is, namely, that you don't love God. You can love what God gives you. You can love the benefits of Christianity, but still not actually treasure God, and that is the essence of ungodliness. So the question is, do you see ungodliness in your life? What I mean is, is there anything in your life eclipsing God as the supreme, all-satisfying center of your lives? I mean, how would you know if there was? How would you know if something was eclipsing God as the supreme, all-satisfying center of your life? And the answer is easy. All you have to do is think about who you are, And what you think about when you are all alone, by yourself, in secret, and no one can see you except God. Because hard though it may be to hear, the God that you truly worship is what you think about most when you are in solitude. Because what you think about most is what you love the most. And what you love the most, you will begin to resemble You see, we become what we worship. But again, you feel the question. We we all want to ask it. The question is, okay, 
If, if ungodliness is to thirst for something other than God as the treasure of the soul, and it is, the question is, okay, how do we put ungodliness to death? Because isn't that what Paul promises? That grace is the power to deny ungodliness? How do we do that? How does grace empower us to deny ungodliness? That's the question. Let's flip the question the other way. How do you be a godly people that put Christ on display? That's the question. And the answer is, to be godly, you must be captivated by God himself. That's the answer. To see God is to be transformed by God. Because if it's true that we begin to resemble what we love the most, and it is, then to be godly, we must labor in God's word to see God for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. You see, to to deny ungodliness is not just to, to tweak a few bad habits, but it is to have your soul clobbered by the soul paralyzing beauty of God found in the pages of Holy Scripture. Do you see, the secret to a thriving soul is not to avoid thinking deeply about God, but it's to push yourself deeper than ever into who God is. You see, we will only be as godly as our view of God is profound. Because here's the thing. Low-calorie salad dressing might be a good idea for you, but low-calorie theology is a terrible idea. It's worthless. Light, mushy, fuzzy, ambiguous views of God are a help to nobody's soul. That is the root of idolatry. That's the problem. So grace, grace is God's power to help us see God as a treasure of infinite Value, But you know, you know, there's another sin that grace instructs us to deny. Look again at verse 12. He says, the grace of God appeared, instructing us, empowering us to deny ungodliness. Not only that, but also to deny worldly lusts. Worldly lusts. And just saying it out loud sounds bad, doesn't it? And it is bad. In fact, it's, it's worse than you can imagine. Because notice, notice, it's not just a lust, it is a worldly lust. And notice it's not just singular, it's plural. Lusts, more than one. What does Paul mean? Well, to be worldly, of course, means that it's from the world. Its source is from the world, and the world, as you know, is under the blinding spell of the evil one. And so what Paul means is, is that to be worldly is to do what the world does, which is to look to anything other than God to satisfy the deepest longings of the soul. That is worldliness. You see, to be worldly... It does not mean that you watch movies or that you have a beer or that you listen to rock music. No, it's that you live your life as though God makes no difference. He could exist or he could not exist. 
and nothing changes about your life. That is worldly. And so when Paul talks about worldly lust, he means when we do what the world does, which is take something that's not God and love it and worship it and try to be satisfied in it as if it were God. That is worldly lust. And so the question is, is there anything like that in your lives right now? In the garden of your hearts, do you see worldly lusts springing up and growing and consuming and taking over your lives? Again, the question is, how would you know? How would you know if there was a worldly lust in your life? Easy. You look for the symptoms. And there are four symptoms. Four symptoms that God is being replaced in your lives. Four symptoms of God replacement. Here they are. I'll repeat them several times, so don't worry about writing them down if you don't get them right here. Deceit, anger, fear, and sorrow. Those are the four symptoms of God replacement in your life. Deceit, anger, fear, and sorrow. Deceit. Are you willing to deceive people to get something you know you shouldn't have? That's an idol. Anger. Are you angry that you can't have something that you think you deserve? That's an idol. Fear. Are you fearful that you're going to lose something that you think you need and that you think you are entitled to? That's an idol. Sorrow. Are you sorry that you have lost something that's not God that you think will make you happy? Is there anything like that in your lives? If so, I guarantee that what's lurking underneath is a lust for something other than God. And so the question is, if you did see that in your life, if you did see worldly lust in your life, well, what what do you do? What are you supposed to do about that? Help me, Paul, because the text says grace instructs us to deny worldly lusts. How does that happen? And the answer is this. Listen very carefully. Sin is what we do when we are not supremely satisfied in Christ. The only reason why sin is appealing to us is because Jesus Christ is not. Our failure in our holiness is our failure to see Jesus Christ as supreme and triumphant over the suicidal pleasures of sin. And so grace, God's grace in Christ, get this, grace is God's power that keeps you from sinning. How does it do that? by pointing us to the superior beauty of Christ found in the pages of Scripture. Do you see? That is how it works. Grace is God's power to awaken us to the superior beauty of Christ which triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin. That is how it works. That is how grace operates. Bottom line. If you want to experience the transforming power of God's grace in your life, and I know you do, then you must ransack the word of God daily in long, long meditation upon who Jesus Christ is. But here's the thing about God's grace, is that it cuts both ways. We saw that one 
aspect of grace is that it gives us the power to do the things that we should never do, but it doesn't only do that. It actually gives us the power to do the things that God commands that we do. Look what he says. Here's the other edge of the sword about grace in verse 12. Notice, the grace of God the Savior appeared to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts on the one hand, but also, also notice, grace instructs us to live soberly, righteously, and godly now in the age on the other. Do you see? Grace is both defensive and offensive, positive and negative. It not, only gives, it not only gives us the power to never do what God forbids, it is the power to do what he commands. And yet the question is, how does God require us to live? What is it exactly that God expects from you? Do you know? Do you know how God wants you to live? What is God's will for your life? Paul tells us exactly what that is. He calls you to live soberly, righteously and godly now in the age. A perfect summary of the entirety of the Christian life. And yet what we need to do is we need to look at each one of those things. What what are the three qualities of a life transformed by grace? Let's look at each of those. Number one, you must live soberly. You must live soberly. The Greek text, the adverb there, it literally says soberly. Grace instructs us to live soberly. And as you could probably guess, to live soberly is the opposite of living drunkenly. And to live drunkenly, get this, it means that you are easily driven to excessive emotional extremes because of your circumstances. It means that when you are blindsided by the unexpected or the inconvenient, your theology goes right out the window and you make hasty, impulsive decisions out of fear or panic or anger or despair. That is the life of a spiritual alcoholic, unstable, unfocused, consumed by a thousand fears and anxieties. Which means at the end of the day, to live soberly is to have a white knuckled control grip over your thought lives. In other words, to be soberly means that you interpret life not how you feel in the midst of your circumstances, but you interpret life through the God who is sovereign over your circumstances. Do you hear the difference between those two things? You see, to be sober, get this, is the spiritual art of taking every single moment in your lives and putting it in the grand context of what God is doing in human history. And what God is doing in human history is obtaining a bride of redeemed souls for His Son from every nation and your lives are a part of that story. Do you see? No matter what's going on in your lives, God is in control and He is at work. You see, the difference between living drunkenly and soberly is the difference between a senior picture and an aerial photograph. Seeing a senior picture, mine were dreadful, with his face, how could they not be? But with a senior picture, you get it, you are the center, you are the focus, you are the point, nothing else in your senior picture really matters unless it's to accentuate your beauty. And you see, the problem is we treat our lives like a senior picture. 
We look at self. We focus on self. We depend on self. We generally think that we are the most important thing happening in the universe. We don't have lenses. We don't have the ability to see beyond ourselves. We look to our own supposed sufficiency, and which means we are our own reference point, and the result is we just don't have the theological infrastructure to handle the sucker punches of life. But, but if you view all of life like an aerial photograph, in other words, with a God's eye view of history, then, then, or put it this way, when you view all of life through the lenses of the comprehensive sovereignty of God over everything, then you will live soberly. And here's the thing, if you live soberly, Yes, to be sure, you will be personally fulfilled as a human being. You will have a life of personal fulfillment and enjoyment, to be sure. But even more than that, Christ will be exalted. I just need you to know, the world needs you to be sober. I'm serious, the world needs you to be sober because the world categorically is not sober. I mean, have you heard of the opioid crisis in America? Over 11 million Americans abusing and addicted to, to prescription pain medication and hooked on all sorts of psychedelic, psychotropic uh, drugs to numb the pain, all because they do not know or they do not believe that Jesus Christ has absolute undisputed dominion over everything. But you do, though. You, you believe that. You believe that, which means you have the opportunity of a lifetime to offer real hope to real people in your lives, all because you know exactly who is in charge and you know exactly where human history is headed. And that is the essence of living soberly. Number two, second quality of a life transformed by grace. Number two, you must live righteously. You must live righteously. Look at the text, verse 12. Paul says, The grace of God appeared, instructing us, empowering us not only to live soberly, but here it is, it instructs us to live righteously. Righteously. The question is, are you a righteous person? Do, do you know what it means to be righteous? Because you see, to figure out what it means for us to be righteous, we have to understand what it means for God to be righteous. And for God to be righteous doesn't merely mean that he does the right thing or abides by a standard. No, for God to be righteous is this. Listen very carefully. It means that he values supremely what is supremely valuable. It means that God upholds preserves, promotes the highest possible good for all mankind. And what that does is raise the question, okay, well, what is supremely valuable? What is the highest good for all mankind that God upholds, preserves, promotes, and endorses? What is that? And the only thing that fits that description is the glory of God himself. Do you see? That is the righteousness of God, that he does whatever it takes to uphold and preserve and display his own glory, because that is the highest possible good for all mankind. The question is, are you a righteous person? 
Because now we know what it means to be righteous. It means that we value supremely what is supremely valuable, namely the glory of God. It means that we uphold, preserve, endorse, and display the highest possible good for all mankind, namely the glory of God itself. I mean, do you see how God-centered this is? And you might be thinking, I can't even follow what you're talking about. What would that even look like? Well, I'll just have you know that to be righteous is more practical and pervasive and invasive than you could possibly imagine. For instance, here's what righteousness looks like. When you choose to obey Christ, even when no one is watching, you are making a statement. You're making a statement about what is supremely valuable and lasting and satisfying. When you choose to enjoy Christ over the passing pleasures of sin, you are upholding and endorsing Christ as the supreme treasure of the universe. When you talk about Christ, when you bring up spiritual things with someone who does not know him, and and you, even if they persecute you and kill you, you are promoting and endorsing Christ as the highest possible good, regardless of your personal comfort and security. Do you see? When When you invest money and time into the ministry of the local church and the Great Commission instead of the false fool's gold of greed and materialism, you display that the glory of Christ is worth more than anything that money has to offer. Do you see? To be righteous hits you where it hurts. Which means I need to ask you, are you a righteous person? What I mean is, do you value supremely what is supremely valuable? Is what defines your life the celebration and the elevation as the glory of God in Christ as the highest possible good for all mankind? And of course, you can't miss the point of the passage. Because where the power to be righteous comes from is grace. And where we find that grace is in the pages of Holy Scripture. Finally, number three, the third quality of a life transformed by grace, you must be godly. You must be a godly people. Look one more time at what Paul says. He says, the grace of God, the Savior, appeared to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and to live soberly, righteously, and godly now in the age. Because again, we all know that we should be godly. And we want to be godly, but we're a bit paralyzed because we don't exactly know what it means and we don't know where the power to be godly comes from. Well, I'll just have you know that to be godly is not to speak in hushed tones or to wear a burlap sack with a rope for a belt. That, that's, not, that's not godliness. To, God, to be godly, get this, is to live with a profound God consciousness. And a God awareness that knows that no matter where you are, you are standing on holy ground. Why? Because God is there. To be holy means that God is so real to you, the living God is so real to you, that you would never dare trifle with Him or treat Him as common. It means that how you live, even the most private and secret moments of your lives, is lived like he's actually there. 
and he's real and he's everywhere and he's the most precious and sacred and satisfying reality in the universe. That is godliness. And yet by now you know where the power to be godly comes from. You know where it comes from. It comes from his word. It comes from his word. And I close with this. See, you will only be as godly as your view of God is profound. See, the only truly godly people in the world, hear me now, the only truly godly people in the world are those who breathe the rarefied air of the towering majesty of God found in the pages of Scripture. You cannot be godly if you have not seen the deep things of God in the ocean of God's revelation. Godliness only happens when we see the happiness of heaven and the horrors of hell from the pages of Scripture. Those who have long soared in the stratosphere of the Bible to see the matchless glory and supremacy of God, they are the ones who are godly. And because of what they've seen in the text, their lives can never be the same again because that right there, that is, is doctrine. And doctrine is not a game. It is not a joke. It is not a class. It is not a piece of paper that defines your denomination. No, doctrine is the nuclear core reactor of the Christian life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would encourage these people. May your word be a joy and encouragement to them. May they be comforted and strengthened. May you help them in the context in which they minister. May you awaken those who are dead. May you renew those who are lacking passion and may you transform those who need transformation. We thank you in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.